Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Barry Smith was brought up in a hotel and as a child was fascinated by the aromas that surrounded him. Now a distinguished academic philosopher, he's also a founding director of the University of London's Centre for the Study of the Senses. Listen to us chat about his views on the objectivity of taste, how COVID has changed our view of anosmia, his favourite bottle of wine, and why smell is the least appreciated of our senses. Hello, Barry. How are you? I'm fine. Good to see you, Tim. Uh, even though we're over the over the Zoom airwaves rather than being face to face. Well, we'll be. I hope we'll be face to face soon with a bottle of wine. As well. Of course. Listen, we're going to talk about some fascinating, quite complex things today. At least they are to me, anyway. Um, before we get onto that, I want to ask you something much simpler. What were you doing on MasterChef? Ah, well, on MasterChef, I was one of those, you know, extra uh, specialists who were brought in. There, there were, I think there were about five of us. There were uh, people called the world's best authorities on taste. So we had a professional tea taster, we had a chef, we had a natural wine enthusiast, we had somebody from the, the Master of Wine Institute, and then me doing the sensory stuff. And and most of the time, I seem to remember us walking and being filmed in slow motion walking. Here are the world's leading authorities on taste. And of course, we had these lovely contestants who were asked to do uh, tasting menus for us. And, and they got a little carried away. What, one, one guy had very nicely brought a little scent spray and he could spray a, a, a sea scent across his dish. And as soon as it caught our nostrils, I think, Myself and one of the others said, urine. <laughs> and they made, us, they made us take it again. <laughs> you, you ruined his party piece, right? Yeah. I, I love watching the, the TED talk you did about smell. And I recommend it to anyone who's listened to the podcast. It was really fascinating. Thank and you, you. Talk, you talk in the in the talk about a particular smell of the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery Museum in your mm. hometown of, of Glasgow. And I've got this kind of image of a, of a, a little Barry in the museum as a child. When did you start to, to, to be aware and to develop your senses? Was it something that came with your family background? Was it something you were encouraged to do? I think it I think it came with family background because my father was a hotelier and as a child, you didn't have neighbours because you were living in a hotel. So, so you spent all of your time trying to find interesting places to scoot around. And I would you know, go along to the laundry room and you've got this fantastic hit of fresh sheets, fresh laundry, overwhelming. And I would go into the cocktail bar before it opened and I would try and persuade the very powdered and lipstick uh, uh, woman behind the bar to give me maritino cherries. So, you know, the, the benzaldehyde smell is very... Were those the glassy ones? The glassy, the glassy cherries, cherry. yeah. Right. And it's and it's just that almond cherry note, mm. Bakewell tart note, you know, that's that's there. And then, you know, uh, going along to, to see the breakfast cooks and having that smell of fried bacon. So, so I think I was in a fairly sensory environment from the beginning and then i go along to the art gallery and museum and as i said in the in that uh that ted talk that it, it, it's just the fact that it smells of 
old furniture polish and stone, but it's its own particular thing. And and the Glaswegians hadn't necessarily commented on it to each other, but when it went for its multi-million pound refit, they all said, don't change the smell, don't change the smell. <laughs> you know, it's like the whole of Glasgow erupted because that's part of their cultural history. They want to, they've been there as children, they're taken back as adults yeah. and they and they remember it. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was at high school in the States, we had two books we were given. Uh, I did a, a, I think it was called about art appreciation. And one was, was entitled Learning to Look and the other one was Learning to Listen. And there wasn't a learning to smell or a learning to touch or to taste I mean, can we train our senses, all of them in the same way? Can we get better at these things or are we stuck with our physical limitation? Well, I, I think we definitely get better at them. And, and you know, there you are, one of the, the world's skilled tasters and sniffers. And I think uh, it's not because you were born with some special capacity. It's, you were trained, you learned. And, and it just seems to me that if people are at a normal level of sensory ability, it's whether they pay attention to it. It's whether they they work it and exercise it. So the funny thing is, you know, we've got words in the language, like we talk about looking or observing. You know, observing is a bit more deliberate. It's a bit more attentive. And, and you know, it's the difference between hearing a piece of music and really listening to it. So there's the same thing with taste. And yet when we come to tasting, people think nothing could be easier. You know, mm. I sip it or I pop it in my mouth and chew it and everything will give them, be given to me all at once. They don't realize it doesn't, a wine doesn't give up all its secrets all at once. You know, you've got to put the work in. Yeah. So I think people are just mistaken by treating taste as somehow simpler than mm. hearing and seeing. Yeah, but I find it interesting. My brother's an architect and I find that he sees things in, in ways that are different from the way I see them. And he often says to me, look up, you know, because I think if you're used to, you know, we're, we're just walking along in our day-to-day -day lives and we tend to look at the level uh, at which we're walking rather mm. than thinking, you know, having a peripheral vision mm. or looking up, you know. And I suppose that's the same, you could say the same thing of tasting, really? I think I think that's right. And I, I, I especially know that in Glasgow, I, I love taking tourists there because they think, oh, it's going to be a grim experience. And I, I tell them, from architect friends, look up yeah. and look at all that elaboration on the roofs and on the ceilings and all the work that's done. And I think with tasting, it's it's pay attention and see what's there. Mm. But, but this, the, the way I think to teach people tasting and the way that uh, people don't get it straight away is the best thing is discriminative tasting, comparative. You take yeah. two wines side by side and, and you know, any, any novice at all, give them two different but but you know, similar type wines, get them to try one and then the other. And you say, which do you prefer, the left or the, the one on the right? And they'll say, hmm, the one on the left, why? Yeah. And now they'll start to tell you something about it. Mm. It's sweeter, fruitier, or I don't like the taste of the other one. Uh, and you think the hardest thing we do is the normal thing. You're given a single glass and then people say, what do you think about it? Yes. Well, compared to what, you know? So so I, I, I do think we've we've kind of missed a trick about bringing people into the world of wine. Yeah, funnily enough, I just did a piece about this that very thing this week, about wrestling and wine, and I was talking about a, 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 a wrestler called Mick McManus. So you know, oh, if you yeah, remember, remember. Mick McManus. Yeah. Well, Mick McManus came along to a wine magazine test in What Wine years ago. No and, way. Because <laughs> we used to invite celebrities along, and Mick, you know, had a few and enjoyed himself, and his writing was illegible. And the only thing that we had glean from his from his jottings was suits my taste uh, and that was mixed only <laughs> it was mixed only <laughs> anyway and i wrote a piece based on this and, and hilariously 
when when it appeared, it appeared in in print as not as suits my text, but shits my text. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I did a whole thing about that. They're teaching people to taste. But I, I'm interested, you know, we've all been brought up with the idea, and I, I think it started with Aristotle, but correct me if I'm wrong, you're the philosopher, that we have just those five senses. And I was yeah. very interested, you talking in another interview uh, uh, on YouTube, saying that the notion's wrong. We've got anything between 22 and 33 senses. Yes. Can you explain the discrepancy? And what, what are those other senses? Well, I think it's interesting. Why do we think we've only got five? Uh, you know, if you ask people in the street, they'll say five. And, and, and I, I'm still trying to find out why, apart from the fact that Aristotle told them. I mean, Aristotle yeah. also told us there were just five substances that made up, you know, the world with earth, fire, wind, and so on. We don't mm. believe that anymore. Mm. So why do we still believe five senses? It's tricky. If you think of it for a moment, we've got other senses. Um, right now, people listening to us, if they close their eyes, and they don't move, they know where their hands and their feet are without looking at them or touching them. So that's proprioception. That's another mm. internal sense. Mm. There's your sense of balance. You know, that that's very important for getting around the world. If that goes off or goes wrong, mm. the world starts spinning. It feels terrible. Now, your sense of balance is made up of other senses. You've also got your eyesight and your proprioception to tell you which way is up. But, you know, we, we now think of touch. Touch isn't a single sense. It's got temperature. It's got pain. It's got pressure. Mm -hmm. It's got, you know, the feel of velvet or silk. Mm -hmm. These all look as other slightly different senses. And so you get fractionation within the senses. And I think once you start down that track, you realize five just won't do it. That's very true. Yeah, because I mean, because grip, gripping something and stroking something are two very different experiences, aren't they? Really? Very different. And in fact, um, interestingly, if you're touched, you know, someone just sort of taps your hand, that's very different from someone stroking your hand. And mm. it's a different set of nerve fibers that respond to stroking. It's That gives you pleasure. That's uh, affective touch, as it's called. And I often think the same is true on the tongue. You know, if, if you if you just got a sort of big boiled sweet and you're moving it around, you know where it is. But, mm. but you know, the way a, a, a rather heavy, thicker red wine will kind of come and coat the tongue and pass over it you're probably getting that effective touch that feeling of stroking that feeling of the velvet mm. and, and we're very good at assessing the textures of wine i mean chaps like you you know do this for a living you talk about you know the, the silkiness or the velvetness or the, the coarse green tannins that's all touch it's very interesting the work you've done on how our, our senses work together you know that there aren't these neat barriers or separations between them can you give us an example of what you mean, how the senses work together? Not necessarily just the sense of smell and, and, and taste, which we know are connected when we taste wine, that we're smelling it in a sense. Hmm. Are there other ways in which the barriers are broken down very easily? They're not as neat as people think? Yeah, there's, there, there's lots of ways. I mean, I, I have a, a, a lovely friend who's an engineer and neuroscientist called Vincent Hayward, but he's actually French, so he's Vincent Hayward. Hayward. And, <laughs> and he has this lovely demonstration Imagine a poster tube, the kind of thing where we used to buy posters and then that wooden, in mm. that sort of cardboard tube. Mm. It's about that size and shape, and it's connected to a little wire where there's a, uh, there's a sound and a microphone in it. Now, what happens is he gives you this in your hand, and you tip the tube down and, and then tip it up, and you can swear that you're feeling a, a ball bearing rolling down to the bottom and then down to the top. You can, you can literally feel it. And then he unplugs it so you don't get any of that sound 
And now you can tell it's just a hollow tube. So that's amazing, right? That's a way in which sound is changing your feeling of touch. And that's the way the senses work with each other. My other favorite is my old friend and colleague and collaborator, Charles Spence. He gives people two bowls of yogurt. Now he hands them the bowl of yogurt, try that one. Then he hands them the other, try that one. It's the same yogurt in both bowls, but unknowns to the tasters, there's a little weight at the bottom of one of them. And so when he says, try that one, try this one, which one's richer, creamier, or thicker? It's the heavy one, right? Because your brain's just saying, okay, I'm going to put all the information together and figure out what's out there. So can we trust our senses? Should we? Ooh, yeah, well, Descartes thought we couldn't. I think we roughly can, but but they're they're approximate. Their job is to give you an approximation of what's out there. And, and because they're often working in tandem, I mean, take the... Take one of those plastic water bottles. You can see it being crushed and you can hear it being crushed. Now, when you both see it and hear it, your brain locks that information together and it, it has a bigger signal for the combined seeing and hearing. So it's saying there's a single event, pay attention to it. So we use multiple senses to lock onto things in the world and track them. Now, because it's doing that job, it can also be fooled. We can hack the senses by giving it things that are mismatches between sounds and, and touch or between sound and he, uh, and vision. And if we do that, we'll get some funny effects, like the, the, the stuff we can amuse people with. But but by and large, they're okay. They do a good job. Hmm. I want to talk a bit more about, about smell because the, the writer Helen Keller called it, called it the fallen angel. Um, and in many ways, and you've commented a lot about this, it's the sense that people value least. I think there was a lovely thing, I think it was in your TED Talk where you were saying that, that, that youngsters were asked, would they rather lose a social media account or their sense of smell? And yeah, the majority yeah. of them said they'd rather lose their sense of smell. <laughs> Happily lose their sense of smell, right? <laughs> I mean, why, why is it undervalued? Is it the way we developed as, as a species? Is it cultural? What is it exactly? I think it is the way we've developed as a species. Um, mm. So, for example, we are... We are bipeds. We stand up on two legs. Now, most other creatures like us are sort of on all fours. So their nose will actually be closer to the ground. Now, because we're upright, we can see far into the distance and we can hear what's going on all around us. So we, we don't seem to need the sense of smell to tell us where we are and what's around. But imagine if you were in a, a dense tropical forest if you're still living uh, in in that environment where everything is green and, and brown and you don't see very far, uh, you're going to use your ears and you're going to use your sense of smell more. You're going to be very acute and aware of anything that's changed. So I do think it's, it's partly cultural and environmental, but partly the way we've we've evolved as creatures. And, and if you were in that jungle, you'd be, you'd be smelling danger, but you'd also be smelling food, presumably. Food, you? yeah. You'd, yeah. Be, you'd be smelling probably smelling relatives as well, probably mm. smelling, you know, is this another tribe coming who I don't know and I haven't met before? And and in fact, lovely work by uh, Asfa Majid, who shows that while Westerners are very bad at naming smells, she's got the Jahai uh, uh, tribe in Indonesia who um, you give them sort of any object and they'll find a smell word for it immediately. Mm. So they rely on smell much more than we do. Hmm. And why is smell so, so powerfully linked to memory? I'm sure we've all had that experience where you just something just reminds you mm. of a time when it's often about your childhood for some reason, I think, but not always. You know, it's the kind of Proust and the Madeleines and the, and the Linden tea. 
and it transports us to a different point in our lives. Why does smell do that more than any of the other senses? Good question. I mean, first of all, smell projects, the, your smell receptors project by two relays uh, from, from the olfactory bulb to the amygdala. And the amygdala is this limp, part of the limbic system that is uh, there for arousal, for emotion, for memory as well. Um, so, so, so the other senses all go via the thalamus, but, but you get a direct route one connection to this sort of alarm bell in, inside. Secondly, that you, you tend to remember um, events with, with uh, a smell because they were hedonically pleasant or unpleasant. So mm -hmm. those memories are very charged. You know, the Proustian Madeleine, it was a yeah. lovely experience. He's remembering sitting there, dipping his, his, mm -hmm. his, his, his aunt, <laughs> dipping the Madeleine into the, the tisane. Mm -hmm. and, and also, you, you're not wrong about childhood. I think a lot of those memories do come from childhood. And I think it was Beckett who said, they're like, it's either Beckett or Joyce, but said they're like um, time capsules. They haven't been opened and then suddenly smell uh, comes back and, it's, and it takes you right back to that event. It's not even, oh yes, I remember. You feel as though you're there. It's like a little time capsule. And I think they're, they're held on from childhood and you didn't know they were in there. And it was because they were charged with emotion. That's interesting. That's why they're so powerful. Mm. You've also done a lot of work on, on anosmia, what happens when you, when you lose your sense of smell. And I think it was you who said that, you know, a quarter of us could lose our sense of smell by the time we're 70. Mm. And obviously, with, certainly with the initial variants of, uh, of COVID-19, that was a big symptom, wasn't it? People yeah. losing their sense of smell. Are people taking anosmia more seriously now than they were because of COVID and the pandemic that we've, that we've lived through? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, you know, all of us who are working on smell, my, myself and my neurobiologist and clinical colleagues, you know, we, we had a terrible time trying to get people to pay attention to smell. And we would talk about anosmia and they say, hey, what? And, mm. and now I think, you know, there's, there's almost nobody who reads a newspaper who doesn't know what anosmia is. So that's mm. actually, that's an upside. It's generated a lot of attention in science and medicine to, to the sense of smell. And the other thing is that it's, 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 you know, one silver lining is it's, it's reminded people of just how important a sense it is and how mm. much it's part of everyday experience. Mm. It was only when people lost the sense of smell that they, they suddenly felt not just, well, I can't, you know, I can't smell fresh laundry or I, I'm mm. not tasting so much in, in coffee or tea. They also said, I feel as though I'm behind glass. I feel as though I'm cut mm. off from the world. I think that's a, great insight that shows you smell is always there it's mm. always on but it's like a background to consciousness it's just modulating your experience of the world mm. and it's only when that's taken away you suddenly feel a dimension has gone of experience now you and, know that smell is quite important and do you know anybody who's had covid whose sense of smell has not come back or, yeah. or where their sense of smell has been yeah. damaged yeah. irreparably, irreparably. well we, we do sadly i mean there, there are some patients who still haven't recovered the sense of smell from 2020 mm -hmm. and they're really you know very very distraught and that feeling of people talk about not only feeling cut off from their their own home their friends their family they feel distance from it it's not the familiar place it was but they also say they feel cut off from their own body they feel somehow disconnected so so that i think shows you how fundamental it is and sadly it may be as many as two percent will not recover the sense of smell after covid most will most will but mm. it's a long haul 
But that's still a lot, given how many million people, millions of people have had it's, it. Given the millions, given the 320 million or so infected, and 65% of them will have had smell loss. Yeah, it's wow. a big number. Yeah. I mean, a lot of your work lies in this sort of nexus between philosophy, neuroscience, psychology. I just wonder what the three disciplines can learn from each other and whether philosophy is the most abstract of the trio or does it have practical applications too? I think it is the most abstract, but uh, and, and quite often people will say, you know, haven't you given up doing philosophy? Haven't you sort of pitched in with science? I mean, there's some sense in which I'm doing a lot of sensory science and I'm publishing mm. papers and doing some experimental work. Uh, so if people ask me what I am, I say, I'm a bird that's becoming a plane is really how I see it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but but here's here's the thing. I think you start as a philosopher with questions you want answers to. Um, and and in fact, you you were one of the inspirations for me in philosophy of wine. And I'll I'll embarrass you by telling you why. Because I was, you know, reading you and I was reading Jancis Robinson and others, and they would tell me wonderful notes and descriptions of which vintages and which domains and which makers and which wines were better than which. And, and I was, felt I was learning a lot. And then they would say, and of course, taste is subjective. And I would say, oh, hang on. You know, if taste is subjective, that means that I'm really getting Tim's own personal observations and opinions, Jance's mm. own observations and opinions. And yet they do agree with each other largely and talk about, you know, which vintages are better which which uh, domains are better? Which uh, which winemakers are doing better in which years? And I think they can't really believe taste is subjective. So so what are they talking about? And I always say to people, you know, um, wine tasting skill, knowledge, tremendous knowledge you, you've all built up about wine. That's that's what you've got. But subjectivity, objectivity, that's core business in philosophy. You know, that's really mm. that's really what we do. So I was determined to find out. What is the what is the the truth to there being some objectivity about tasting and about perceiving even the quality of wines? And then the, the way as a philosopher I wanted to understand this was to say, well, here I am talking about taste and tasting. How does it actually work? Why don't I go and talk to the people who know something about this? So I talked to my colleagues in neuroscience and psychology, and they said, oh, tasting very complicated. It's always taste, touch, and smell. The senses are always interacting. And I thought, ooh, that's not how we're usually taught it in philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me more. And they say, well, you've got many more senses than five, and they're, of course, connected to each other and influencing each other's workings. And I thought, we have to start again. So in, in order to answer the philosophical questions that I'm really interested in, I've got to start from the proper scientific basis. Because if you're starting from the wrong assumption that taste and smell are separate, you're not going to you're not going to come up with the right answer. So I, I still see myself as a philosopher driven by philosophical questions, but I want to have the right premises. I want to start from the right place, and for that, I need my science colleagues with with, with different wings, as it were, with yeah, bigger wings, wings. bigger yeah. wings, more engine, yeah, <laughs> more engine. I mean, it's interesting. I want to unpack this a bit more. Really, are you saying that there are things about a glass of wine that can be objectively analysed, and we know that you know it's true of pH or sweetness or alcohol levels. Are you saying that a qualitative judgment can, can be objective too? Yeah, I, I do think that. I mean, so, you know, uh, sweetness and pH and sourness and so on, that's that's okay. I mean, of course, we've got different thresholds, but roughly if you, if you were tasting, and I know that you've done a lot of uh, 
training of people and, and, and bringing them up to speed, you know, one of the things you can do is you can line up all of the, the, the wines and say, put them in the order of which has, you know, the highest acidity. And, and people are pretty good at doing that. Of course, they may not have the same thresholds, but relative to one another, these wines will be more or less acidic and they'll probably agree about the rank ordering. But, but then, you know, I think it was Jasper Morris who said to me, if you're doing that and then you ask people, um, do you like any of those wines? They say, oh, I don't know. And you say, okay, forget all that acidity judgment stuff. Now just taste it the way you would as a, you know, as a punter at home. And you go, oh, that's, that's really quite nice. So, so the qualitative judgments are holistic. They're not about concentrating on acidity or concentrating yeah. on the tannin or concentrating on the, you know, the weight. They're about a whole lot, but they're about harmony and balance. And, and again, you know, what do we mean by balance? Well, we mean, you know, everything you're expecting to be in a wine, a red wine says there, there's the tannin, there's the fruit, there's the alcohol, there's the acidity and so on. And it's all in a good proportion where no part of it is dominating mm. the rest. Now, we can say that because we've thought about it, but I, I, I'm pretty prepared to bet that when you get your novices into a class and you, you gave them a balanced wine and an unbalanced wine and ask them which they prefer, they're going to get it right. They're going to say, oh, I like this. I like this one better. And you'll think, isn't it because they're picking up on balance? They're picking up on, and that's a qualitative feature of the wine. That's something which winemakers aim for and which we probably prize. So I think they can perceive that, yeah. And what happens when critics disagree? I mean, violently, not not to the point that they're going to punch each other, obviously, but, you know, there, there are certainly wines. You know, you think of the 2009 Costes Tonel, which is, you know, a very atypical cost from Bordeaux. And I think Robert Parker gave it 100 points and um, other critics were slightly less complimentary about it. But how do you, how do you square that with this idea that there's this sort of objectivity around a qualitative judgment? That's a really good case, because I think here you've got to ask, when critics seem to disagree with each other, you've got to ask, are they really disagreeing or are they at cross purposes? Mm -hmm. So I remember there was the famous um, 2003... Chateau Pavie. Chateau Pavie, yeah, yeah, with, with, with uh, Jancis Robinson and Robert yeah. Parker. Now, yeah. I, I was so interested in that case that if you look at their they're quickly made tasting notes. Mm. They're actually using some of the same descriptions, you know, mm. viscous, yeah. um, you know, uh, high fruit content, high glycerol content, you know, mm. sweetness, blah, blah, blah. So they're almost agreeing objectively about what it tastes like. And then Jancis gives it the thumbs up and uh, Parker gives it thumbs up and Jancis <laughs> gives it the thumbs down, right? Now, and then you ask, well, why? And, and what she typically said was, um, heavens, that's not a... A, a right bank uh, Bordeaux, mm. and I think she called it as Infidel, which is unfair. I think Amarone this, was... This is not Centimillion as I know it. That's right, yeah. Know, Amarone might be closer, but nonetheless, yeah. she she said not a, you know, it's not a, a right bank Bordeaux. And, um, and of course, remember that Parker doesn't care about that because his 100-point scale believes that you can put any wine against any wine. It could be a, a dessert wine, and it could be a Riesling, and it could be a Bordeaux, and they're all to be judged on 100 points. So in other words, he's got this you know, single scale, and Jancis has got good for a right bank Bordeaux, good for a left bank Bordeaux, mm -hmm. good for a Pomerol, good for a Saint-Emilion, and so on. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have best in show. It's not her style, yes. right? Yeah. So, so in some sense, they may not be disagreeing. If Jancis had not been told where it was from 
and asked, where do you rate this? Maybe she just said, it's very unctuous and rich, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's good. So I do think, yeah, I think they're, they're not really disagreeing. Yeah, no, it's, it's almost as if there's a difference between preferences and perception. You're saying yeah. that their perceptions were basically pretty much the same, yeah. but their preferences on one side is saying, hey, I love this, man, this is great. Yeah, yeah. And the other person's saying, oh, I'm not too sure I like this. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, preference is subjectivity. So I think that's where people get confused because they say, um, you know, you like this wine and I don't. Mm. And, and people often are tempted to a bad philosophical argument that says, well, it can't taste the same to both of us because if it tasted the same to you as it does to me, you'd love it. Not necessarily because maybe it would taste exactly the same, but you you don't like that. I do like that. It's just our preferences. Now, our preferences are subjective. I, I, and so when people talk about taste is subjective, I think they mean on liking and preference. Interesting. Objectivity yeah. to me is about perceptual judgment about what's in the wine, what, what what's it like, as it were. Yeah. And then quality sort of hovers it's not the same as liking because because i i think i mean i you can tell me if this is true i think a really good critic would be able to say of a particular wine region and even wine style this is a better vintage than that this is a better wine better made wine than that but none of them are for me they could still judge the quality i think so yeah i I think it's interesting that if you have readers following you and they like your palate that, that that sort of muddies the water slightly because then it's much harder to say this is a good example of something I don't particularly like. Yeah, you know, I, it, yeah. it's 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 more of an academic discipline in a sense, isn't it? I think that if you're as a master of wine judging a wine, you get used to saying this is a very good example of X. Yes, but you might not like it. And I think that's maybe that's the preference versus yeah. perception thing again. I think it is, but I, I'm also intrigued as to whether um, it is still possible to you know we we we, we can say. Of people, they are really beautiful, but I, I'm not attracted to them, right? But you can recognize the beauty. So I think you should be able to do that with a wine as well. Say, you know, yeah, it's pretty good. It's got, you know, it's got a lot going for it. Not, not for me. And I think it was, I think it was, um, I'm bringing out all my favorite wine quotes now, but um, well, he doesn't know where he got it from. But, but um, Hugh Johnson says uh, he likes the line. I'd rather have a lesser wine if it had more to say. Mm. And I think that's good, you know, because little imperfections, little like things that. you notice, mm. they're, they're, they're delightful for the mind. You, you, you dwell on them a little bit more. Whereas if you've got one of these beautifully well-made, you know, modern style, flawless wines, you can sort of see it's perfect, but it doesn't necessarily have the interest for us. Uh, well, what do you think about the so-called democracy of taste, which is the I know what I like and, and the all tastes are equally valid? And I think what you're saying is there is a role for experts and that experts do notice things that, that ordinary tasters don't notice and, you know, that experience is worth something. I, I, I do think that because, you know, and the way to try to get people towards that is to say, well, do you still like the same foods you did when you were five years old? You know, five mm. years old, you probably thought fish fingers and mashed potato was the best thing you could ever have. But, <laughs> you know, our, we, we do educate our palates. We do acquire tastes. We do build uh, more expertise. So if you consider yourself and your younger self, you probably feel my tastes have improved because my discrimination has improved, my judgment, mm. my knowledge, the range of things I'm bringing to bear. So that's what experts have. And and I, I think 
there's no threat to democracy here because the difference between a, an expert and a novice who's willing to learn is they just haven't got that expertise yet. Mm. They could be helped, especially by an expert who's generous and willing and kind of trying to bring them into the to the domain of judgment. They'll get yeah. there. I wonder, what's your opinion of scores? Do you think that the scores, you know, I don't say we live or die by scores, but they've become a, a kind of a, a part of wine criticism and evaluation these days. For a score to be valid, do you think it has to be repeatable? Or could we say that, you know, wine's changed, taste has changed, you're not always going to have the same reaction to the same, in inverted commas, bottle of wine? Yeah, I wonder whether, I mean, the, the, the trouble is the same bottle of wine but it's not that says inverted commas. It's not the same bottle. Of it's wine, not the same bottle of wine. No, because you know the, no. the trick is you, you do go back. I know and taste wines. You know, ten years after, but of course the wine has changed. So if your score changes, your scores scores are bounded exercises. They're judgments at a time, at a place, in a context. Now they're perfectly okay in that context. The question is whether they whether they can't take the context with them five years later, 10 years later, or even taking the wine across to a different country with a different cuisine and some different palettes of appreciation, that score won't come with it saying, by the way, this was done by Tim Atkin, you know, in London on a damp, damp February night, you know, oh, blah, blah, blah. Hangover, you know, or right. he's in a bad mood because he's right. in an argument right. with, his, with yeah. his wife or something. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, so, I, so I, I'm, I worry about scores. I think they're they're snapshots and people take them to be more, to be kind of enduring legacies. They take them to be panoramas. Yeah. Right? Whereas they're, right. they're a, yeah, it's a telescopic right. thing, isn't it? Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, because we've, we've talked about this a lot in the past, is music. I mean, I often listen to music when I taste, and I know you've got interesting opinions on this. <laughs> is, is there an optimum environment in which to taste? I mean, is it silence? Um, and if I'm listening to music, would I have a different reaction if you chose the music, say, and we don't, you know, your, your, your taste may not be the same as mine, or an 18-year-old rapper chose the music and I was listening to his selection. Would my reaction to the wine change? Would the context change? I think, I think music can definitely change how a wine tastes to you, how you perceive the taste of a wine. Uh, and and we, we know some of this is, you know, universal. It's not sort of individual in particular. So if I give you very high-pitched screaming violin I, I get you to taste a you know Sauvignon Blanc, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, and you get the nice sharp tart. I guess it would taste, right? it would taste even worse. It tastes <laughs> yeah, it tastes even worse. And then then I play you a sort of screeching high note. You'll go ooh, and you can actually when you do that to people, you can see their jaws going ah. Now I then say I then say to them, okay, let's try and sweeten it up, and then you have some nice soft piano or or nice you know guitar music, and they go ah, oh, that's better. So 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 there are effects. But, mm. but there are, they are effects of attention. Now, should we taste in silence? Here, here's my thought about that. Um, a great wine, an outstanding wine, the, the kind of wine which you know, we only get a few times in our lives and so on, that's the sort of thing that will capture your attention, whatever's going on. It could be a noisy room, but you, you taste it. And it's as if everything goes still and quiet. Your mm. attention is completely focused on and captured by that wine. Now, most wines don't have that attention-grabbing power. So when you're tasting lots of, how should we put it, you know, uh, trade wines, it's better if you're in a 
an aircraft hangar-like environment of white walls, no noise, no smell, because the only thing that can grab your attention then is the wine. So you've kind of engineered the circumstance so the wine shouts at you, mm -hmm. but a great wine would shout at you and capture you anywhere. Now, mm -hmm. a, a, a wine that's, okay, let's, let's not be rude, but a wine which is, you know, modest, not, not, not so terribly interesting, palatable, not interesting, is Alamos Malbec. Now, if you yeah. have an Alamos Malbec, you know, 10 quid a bottle, very nice, very good okay. Yeah. But it's got that, you know, consistent blueberry sort of note and, you know, that's it. Uh, I found that if you, if you play people, um, Arvo part, Silencium, the second movement, when they're listening to that, they suddenly find levels in the wine. Oh, the complexity, the different levels, the height, and so on. I actually, I did this for the first time in the lab with um, some chefs from the Fat Duck. And and I, I they tried it. They thought, not very interested in this wine. Put the headphones on them. And they all went, <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, that's really interesting. Oh, that's got, you know, there's the fruit, there's acidity. Oh, so interesting a fact about that piece of music is it has different time signatures in it. And it's also got these different sort of heights in it. And I think your brain does what we were talking about with the senses. Mm -hmm. It says, okay, I'm trying to I'm trying to match this. So just as I found different levels and different temporal sequences, I'll try and impose that structure on the wine. And all of a sudden, this modest average wine becomes a thing of, of <laughs> architectonic beauty. <laughs> it becomes Chateau Latour or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's your most memorable wine? And, and I also want to know whether... The most memorable wine was the wine that gave you the most pleasure. I want us to kind of explore a little bit about pleasure and the role of pleasure in enjoying wine, obviously, but also evaluating. Yes. I mean, I, I, so, so my wine epiphany, because, you know, that moment where you realize, oh, my God, wine can do something I didn't really know it could do, was um, my, my father, you know, finding hotels too much. He, he did the terrible things of Glaswegian. He moved to Edinburgh and, and had a restaurant. Oh, no. I know, had a restaurant there. And, I, I, I resisted this like mad and stayed on in Glasgow. But um, I remember one time it was, it was end of service, lunchtime, and I went into the restaurant. He was still having his lunch and there was nobody else around. All the tables were bare. And he said to me, right, I'm going to teach you how to taste a wine properly. And he had a bin end uh, Mouton Rothschild. And I wish I knew the year. But, you know, we got these, these beautiful big kind of Bordeaux glasses and he sort of got the, the wine waiter to ceremoniously pour it. And then he said to me, now you're not just drinking it. I want you to put your nose in it and, and sniff it. And I remember the fumes seemed to go up through the top of my head and come out through the top of my head. And I thought, oh my God. And, and then when you had a sip of it, there was no fight with the aggressiveness of, you know, a wine with its sharpness and its kind of alcoholic nature that, that you know, student schoolboy wine drinker liked. It just seemed to, it was like a blood transfusion. It was something that you knew was very, very good for you. And it sort of went in and I went, <gasps> and again, the fumes rose from my throat up through the, the top of my head. And, and then I knew, oh, oh, wine can do this. That's pretty special. And then the only the only time that came close to that was a was a was an accident of my poor French. I know you speak beautiful French, and I speak a kind of mangled French. But um, I was doing a piece of academic work 
with a colleague in uh, in Brussels, and we'd been sitting through this sort of horrible long day of you know bureaucracy, but they were paying us rather handsomely for it. And so I thought, well, let's go and have a damn good meal and a, and a bottle of wine. And so my French not being good enough, I, I said at the at the desk, you know, I asked them whether they knew a restaurant that was uh, très chic instead of assez chic. And he said, ah, très chic, monsieur, oui, uh, peut-être comme chez soi. And, and, he, and he said to me to go to comme chez soi. And I knew the error because as the taxi arrived, a man in a top hat opened the door of the taxi, ushered us through thick velvet curtains. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a lot of bucks, you know. Well, let's let's go let's go with it. So um, there was a Joseph Perrier champagne as a sort of aperitif, and I thought that's a good sign. You know, this is pretty good. Then we got the list, and I looked at the list, and there was um, Mayo Camusé, and not a good year, or not a great year, but uh, 1994. So you know, it wasn't one of those vintages, but it was it was affordable, but still pretty pretty high. And it was um, Von Romanet Au Brûlé, and I thought. Ah, I want. I really want to try one of these, one of his von Romanes. So I ordered it, and I, I still remember myself and my colleague. We were there, and she was a very good taster too. And as soon as the waiter took the cork out, the aromas came to us at the table. We didn't even need for it to be poured. And I thought, oh my god, that's that. That's really glorious. And then he he put a little bit into my glass, and I said, no. Um, Tous les deux pour le pour partager le dégustation. And he said, "Okay." So he 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 gave us both. And then he was very worried. What happens if you don't like it? And I said, "Then you choose." You know, if if we're if there's a disagreement. But then we we put our noses into this wine, and we got that that beauty of a of a Burgundy of that sort of ethereal, earthy, but the pure fruit, that sort of tender raspberry note there, and and they wanted a judgment from us you know like is it okay can we pour and and we just didn't want to stop smelling it because it was so glorious you know and in a way when you then have the sip it's still gorgeous but you think it's it's really just having your nose in that aroma that just makes you feel high you the know, second just, blood transfusion right? the second blood transfusion <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> Barry, thank you. It's been fascinating talking to you. I've so enjoyed that. It was such a great chat. And hope to see you very soon for a bottle of wine. For a bottle of wine. Huge pleasure. Thanks so much, Tim. See you. See ya. Well, I don't know about you, but I learn a lot listening to Barry. And do tune in to his TED Talk about smell. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Paul Symington from Symington Family Wines in Portugal's Douro Valley. See you then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at TimAtkinMW. See you next week.